You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the We Are Libertarians daily podcast. It's your boy, Hody Johns, and I am here with Paul Copeland, my good buddy. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing great, Hody. How are you? Uh, fantastic. Uh, I think I give that response every time, but I'm living a fantastic life, so I have no problem just using that word over and over. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, I'm living that fantastic life because uh, I don't have to deal with some of the problems that we deal with on these shows. Uh, I just get to analyze them from a distance, and uh, it's very left-brained of me. But I think the I feel bad for the right-brained, empathetic people of this world because things can get tough in a hurry. Uh, today we like to deal with tough questions, you and I, and today we're going to deal with the one that I get more than any other. I don't know about anybody else, but I know when I talk about libertarianism, this is probably the one question that I get with most frequency, and that's like in a libertarian wor- world, wouldn't cronyism rule? Wouldn't that be the rule of law? Is just say the the richest guys all take over, the most powerful guys take over. We got you know, in your free market society, the evil free market people would just take over, right? Uh, uh, do you ever get that question? Uh, I've I've heard it posed to a few people, not to me directly, but I've heard various refutations of it. See, maybe that's just the circles that I hang in, but. But for me, that's like, this is like the number one thing that I get is just being like, well, you would just let all the evil free market people run wild. And, you know, and that's, and that's just simply untrue. It's just simply untrue. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, So cronyism has kind of come to embrace two different things. Technically, cronyism, by definition, is the appointment of friends and associates to positions of authority without proper regards to their qualifications. So basically, you actually have to give somebody like a job that they don't belong in. Uh, and that happens. You know, you'll get some executive uh, in charge of, you know, the state communications department, and you say, well, he was an executive of, you know, uh, some some phone corporation, but he actually like dealt with the finances. He hasn't he has no idea what he's doing there in communications, but he paid a certain amount of money and now he's there. Most of the time when people talk about cronyism, they talk about bribery, which is to persuade someone to act in one's favor, typically illegally, dishonestly, by gift of money or other inducement. Um, so when we look at those two things, are there any specifics that come to mind for you when you think of cronyism and bribery? Any examples that you can think of off the top of your head? Well, uh, maybe not in terms of uh, currently in uh, government offices, but uh, you know, when I th- I think of cronyism and uh, nepotism, I I think of things like uh, the revolving door at the Clinton Foundation, where uh, their daughter runs the day-to-day operations when mom and dad are seeking office uh, just to, you know, keep control within the family. Sure. And that is, that's a great example of cronyism because 
you'll notice in the definition of cronyism, it didn't just say with government. It's a, just a position of authority without regard to their qualifications. Nepotism is a great example of cronyism. I think everybody has seen that happen in their workplace. You know yeah. what I mean? Which is probably why, I think that's probably why it freaks people out to say, well, in a libertarian world, I see this happen at my work where the guy with the least qualifications still got promoted because, you know, he kissed the most butt or, you know, he wasn't working the overtime and doing the hard work. He just knows the manager personally. I think everybody's seen a, a relative of a manager do better in a company, not through their numbers, but through their paycheck, you know, and, and uh, the Clinton Foundation's a good example. That's when I believe uh Chelsea Clinton, was it her husband? Like, got a got a check to float his business, uh, and she took over. And I, I, I'm aware she was brought up and was probably groomed to be a person that could fill that role. But still, you know, sure, it, it was a role there for her to fill, and nobody else was even given a swing at it. Right. So, I guess to burst people's bubble on this, if if you ever are considering saying like, well, these two things need to be kept separate. First of all, we're not keeping them separately now. Now that's implicitly true just based on our banking system that we have. Because the same guys who print the money also get to determine where that money goes. So to say that the current system that we have is free markets a little bit incorrect. Sarah uh, Brady Wagner and I did an episode about wage slavery, uh, which we which we examined kind of the banking system we have right now and why people call it wage slavery is because we're not in a free market system. We give it, you know, the central bank, they print it, they control it, they give it to whoever they want to, and we just hope it matriculates down our way. So, Paul, if you were a business and you wanted some of that money, what kind of things would you do to try and make sure that some of that money that got printed out comes your way? Well, uh, since I'm an honest broker, I would be uh, creating a product at a price point that would actually sell and engaging in actual economic activity. But I'm sure there are shortcuts to get me where uh, I can gather up as much of that currency flowing about as possible. What are some of those, sh what might some of those shortcuts be? Uh, well, you know, there's a reason why I'm unemployed and don't have my own business right now. What <laughs> would those ways be? Uh, well, you could uh, promise a politician some favors. You know, if you look to get more charge of the system, for example, regulation is a good one. If you wanted to say, well, look, we want to we, we want to help write the regulations so that more business comes our way. You know, hey, we'll have, you know, we'll, we'll give you a certain sum of money. And then you promote this guy who's already a little bit qualified when you get in office. You know, that, that's kind of the cronyism thing. Or just straight up bribery. Just get you know, give the politicians certain amount of money to to vote a certain way. Uh, great example is if you need like a license, right? You hear libertarians talk about occupational licensing reform, how you have to be licensed to walk a dog or to braid someone's hair, things that shouldn't require licenses, but they do. And usually that's because one of these companies uh, or unions has paid a gross amount of money to government officials to keep it that way. And so that way, you're the only company that can do business. So 
uh, Paul, you have no capability of being evil, so I, I apologize for even asking you that question. But people <laughs> like me, where evil lurks way deep down within my heart, I just automatically think of this. I'm like, oh, this guy makes the laws? Well, I can just pay him a certain amount of money and he'll change the law. So, uh, the show notes on this episode are pretty good. There's not too many of them, but they are fascinating. So, we're going to take a look right now at the top uh, lobbyists in the United States in terms of cash incentives provided to your politicians and lawmakers. Um, Paul, you're probably looking at the same list I am. Uh, Is there anything surprising about who's number one on this list? Uh... Well, it has a name that includes the letters U and S, as in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So we are our own biggest lobbyists? Well, how might that... Why might that be, Paul? Because we have a government that's run amok? (laughs) So... Because the the Chamber of Commerce, uh, you know, is made up of former politicians and businessmen who not mutually exclusive groups and they have ideas about what would drive forward the economy of the US and they spend money trying to you know see that through now unlike everyone else who has a limit on their spending power uh, the US Chamber of Commerce actually gets to deal with a lot of that printed cash so uh, it looks like at one point four eight billion dollars in lobbying cash incentive money to your local lob or to your to your lawmakers they are almost three times higher than the next highest lobbyist on this list uh and so because they have unlimited taxpayer money slash it's not even taxpayer money i mean unlimited printed money to just give out they really have no limit to their spending and they've shown that so when you, we talk about evil lobbyists spending cash money to buy up politicians, okay, number one on that list is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and it's three times higher than your second place. I, I just want to make that clear for our listeners here. that So when one of your friends is talking about like, oh, but that was evil lobbyists when you're a libertarian, you can totally agree with them and be like, yes, our own government. That's right. Our number one lobbyists are our own government. Now, this happens in a lot of ways. One of the reasons this is on here is because to get a bill passed, a politician wants a little money. Uh, we talk about the earmarks at the end of every bill that gets passed. Usually, that list is longer than the bill itself. And so, you see all this money coming from the Chamber of Commerce, going to phantom school districts, going to you know hospitals that don't exist, going to places that never end up receiving the money, sometimes in the form of saying... Uh, what the the famous camel statue that costs like two hundred thousand dollars but only costs like twenty thousand dollars to make well the other hundred and eighty thousand gets pocketed by some politician and that's the u.s chamber of commerce bribing your politicians to do what we want them to do now that's the u.s chamber of commerce that's a federal run organization and so obviously it's going to do a lot of things that make the federal government bigger and your local and state governments a lot smaller so uh that is uh that's number one some of the other uh, when you look at this list paul what are some of the ones that stick out to you or one of the one that you feel would be interesting to talk about so after the u.s chamber of commerce there are three uh that are 
rather than individual organizations, these are associations. Okay. Uh, which you have the National Association of Realtors, the American Medical Association, and the American Hospital Association. That's uh, two through four. Yeah, which if you, as we discussed in our prior two uh, episodes about hospital and medical costs, why do you think they are able to spend between the medical association and the uh, hospital association six, seven hundred million dollars? Yeah, a little over seven hundred million dollars. Um, yeah. Well, uh they have the, you know, obviously there's a lot of medical licensing, so they're the only ones able to to do that. And you have to zone out everybody else who wants other medical licenses. You have the American Medical and the American Hospital Association, too, the only two who can issue those licenses. And so, therefore, if somebody else wants to join in the game, if you wanted to become, say, a small, you know, uh medical group that you want to compete with these other two, you're going to need at least 300 and what? 365 uh, million dollars a year. Sorry, this is annual. This is a year to buy out, you know, politicians and lawmakers so that you can even have licenses. Um, If you wanted to compete with the American Medical Association, American Hospital Association. So, I mean, you asked me what jumps out to me and that's that, these two have cornered out the markets because they don't let they don't let anybody else compete because their politicians illegalize it. Yeah, uh, and number five is the pharmaceutical research and manufacturers of America. Yep, and that's right. That's again over three hundred and fifty million dollars. Politicians as well. Uh, pharmacies oh surprise surprise pharmaceutical research and manufacturers now here's where we talk about this we talked about this in the the tough questions on healthcare that these drug companies don't actually have to compete with somebody else there might be three of them but they're all represented by this one entity the pharmaceutical research and manufacturers of america and so by spending this 358 million dollars a year Politicians always will vote to say, remember the, the, uh, the vote to try and let drugs come in from Canada or other countries that we trust? That's still not even open market, but that's just saying, hey, maybe we get somebody else in there. And it was roundly defeated because this company, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, had to spend a lot of money to keep it illegal so that they could keep keep Americans using their pharmaceuticals and, and maintain a position of no competition. So those three that you're looking at there, medical, hospital, pharmaceutical, that kills a lot of people. And that makes healthcare prohibitively uh, unaffordable. I mean, if you find it, just say, I can't afford that much to be on healthcare or insurance or whatever, th- this is your reason because anybody who would make it, competitive is not allowed to be competitive because it's illegal because these guys bribe your politicians. Um, Yeah. yeah, No secret there. Uh, The three that I really wanted to look at, they're all right in a row. And so this is a little bit down on this list, but Boeing, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin are all within 20 million of each other. It's a, let's see, Boeing at $270 million all the way down through Lockheed Martin at $251 million. So all three of those are defense contractors. They build your 
your jets, your bombs, uh, your missiles. They're the only ones allowed to put yeah. you know, satellites in the sky and, and help out with like uh, spacecrafts and stuff. So, Paul, yeah. if you were going to be a defense contractor, you're up and coming. You have the engineers. You have uh, you have you have the the construction workers. You have the line assembly guys. You have all the pieces ready to do it. Paul, how much money do you think it would take a year to bribe politicians to be allowed to compete for defense contracting? Well, it's certainly a lot easier to break into than the medical field, so I know what I'm aiming for now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you'd have to be getting up over uh, up around $250 million just to compete with Lockheed Martin. Uh, but, you know, you, if you want to top out and come in front of Boeing, $270 million is your price point. So we have these reasons. These only guys are the ones getting used. The thing is, is in some cases, like in the medical ones, it's actually illegal to compete, right? But the government contracting, they actually get to choose. So of course, they're not going to choose someone that did not pay them at least $250 million, right? Because they just say, you know, hey, we'll get to choose. You know, we'll, we'll choose whoever, you know, whatever defense contractor we want. But to even yeah. be one of those choices, you're going to have to pay at least, like you said, on the low end, $250 million to politicians every year to compete. Well, I don't think that a small team can compete with that. Isn't that going and to only benefit these big businesses? Go ahead. I, I mean, historically, if you had a novel design for a firearm or something that was an improvement that the uh, army actually wanted to adopt, they would take your design, pay you for it, and then hand it off to another contractor who has a bigger and better setup than you uh, in order to manufacture it, especially during World War II and World War One. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you might be able to get paid for working in the military contracting arena but you will never be able to become one of the big guys yep and and that's exactly and what's really embarrassing is some of the ones on this list actually so they're contractors and then they contract out that government money they get to other contractors so i mean in some cases they even connect as middlemen uh, okay, we spent a lot of time talking about this and not a lot of times on the solution. The reason I bring this up and this list up is because it's already happening. So when you say, well, in your libertarian world, the big businesses are going to just, just rule us. Well, they already buy out your politicians and they rule everything. So that's... Any, any libertarian suggestion is already going to be better than this scenario. Uh, the low. So, if we just look at this list, and you say, okay, let's say you buy about a thousand members of government. That's more than every elected federal official. That's more than you know. If you combine the House, the Senate, let's say you buy bribe all the Supreme Court just, justices somehow. Let's say you pour all that money into the president and his whole cabinet. You buy every politician you can think of, a thousand members. That means the Department of Commerce is averaging, averaging. $1.5 million per politician. And on the low end, this, this list has 1 through 20. Number 20 is Comcast. That's $194,000 per politician. That's, that's 
absurd, right? That's an absurd amount of money. So remember this when we're talking about this cronyism. So I'm going to push this forward here. There's a million things that I want to talk about, but for the sake of time, uh, I think everybody's already heard something about occupational licensing for reform. We'll keep going. Yeah. Um, we have um, on the wall network that, there's Rob Cortell who does our uh, our swamp episodes with Chris, which which are always fascinating. Uh, search the Weird Libertarians for Rob Cortell, Q U A R T E L, and uh, the, he just gives you good insight to it. Now he talks about how money isn't even isn't even the surface. This this is cash incentives, but this doesn't include getting a deal on mortgages or whatever the company can actually provide you in addition to that. And and that's the majority of where it's spent. You know, these savvy parties, these hotel, you know, get-togethers, these expensive vacations, uh, you know, that that's more... Right. This even makes the cash money yeah. lo- look very small. I mean, the lobbyists are really just saying, you know, this is you know, this is the cost of doing business, you know, of, of getting these guys out here and making them come to the table. And then we really hit them with, with the, uh, you know, Rob does such a good job describing it, especially since he's been a part of uh, Washington, D.C. life for so long. I'll just direct other people to those episodes. Um, Altria, the tobacco uh, corporations on here, and we have a cost episode that talks about how they've pretty much made it illegal for anybody not in their group of friends to sell cigarettes or tobacco. Um, they're not even allowed to call them cigarettes. Uh, let's see here. So how do libertarians make it better? Uh, well, there's talk about end the Fed. What, when you hear end the Fed, what do you think of, Paul? Uh, speeches by octogenarians. <laughs> and what is an octogenarian uh, for, for for our casual listeners, eighty year old person, uh, <laughs> no, I, I I like Ron, but uh, no. So to me, it's always been a rather arcane, uh, arcane slogan. It's something that I don't think, to me, has never been very connected to actual policy. Like, okay, yeah, we get rid of the current monetary system. So, but, what would what would make you, I guess, how, how would you sell this then as a libertarian? Well, uh, I am interested to hear what you have to say about ending the Fed, but uh, I think the, uh, the argument that a free market would be less cronyistic uh, is a lot simpler to make. And that would be, you know, cronyism involves trading power for benefit. And if nobody has the power, how do you trade that for a benefit? I mean, in all the ways that, that we've listed. and But in the, in the free market, it seems that if, if you're not able, if the politician has very little power to change your lives, then all the bribery money in the world really won't do you a lot of good. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of the point. So I, I think part, so ending the fed is a cute slogan in the current financial system though. Uh, while now I support ending the fed, I guess. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that straight up. However, in our current system where a politician is able to control your life, for example, they're able to make it illegal for you to walk a dog. Right. Yeah. 
So first things first, in a libertarian society, it is not illegal for you to walk your dog, and no politician is allowed to make that illegal. Any voluntary relationship that you have is legal. So if I if I say Paul, will you walk my dog? And you say sure. That's a voluntary relationship. Libertarians say all those voluntary relationships are legal, right? So a politician doesn't have the right to take that away from you. So that's step one. So and that involves several. I guess you could either say the creation, but I think it's probably more the repeal of several laws and several different. I mean, to be fair, court decisions as well. Um, and so that's that's part one of the libertarian world is saying, you know, first of all, that politician doesn't have that control. So even if I don't say, hey, you're not allowed to bribe a politician, because a lot of libertarians say, you know, the, technically you should be able to give money to whoever you want to. But if I give, uh, you know, $1.5 million to a politician and say, hey, I need you, uh, uh, here's a good one, broadcasting is on here. I need you to make it so that all broadcasters have to be licensed. And the politician says, well, I, I'm not allowed, I, I don't have that power. Like, it's actually illegal for me to do that. I could go to jail. I could get killed. I'm not going to take your $1.5 million. Or if I do, it's a waste of your $1.5 million to try and bribe me. Yeah. So, without power, you can't give away favors. And that's the libertarian ideal. And that's why when I... When I hear the question like, oh, what are you going to do about cronyism? I'm just like, what cronyism? The only cronyism that would exist would be within a private company. Hiring your cousin to take a job because you want, you know, more power, more control, or more money just going to family members. And at that point, you know, if they do a bad job, that just harms that one company. And we're going to talk... Pre, uh, pretty quick here. I did. I want to play this video, so I'm going to play a video here. Okay. It's a three minute Ordinary video. Whoop! Sorry, that got loud. And just listen to this. It's a three minute clip, but it explains the free banking system. So when we talk about ending the Fed. This is actually what we're moving towards. Because I, I think you talk about ending the Fed. That's great, but then people say, "Well, then that nobody's printing money. How does it work? What's going on?" So let me play this real quick. Debates about monetary and banking policy take it for granted that a government central bank, like the Federal Reserve System, will continue to provide money and that government regulators will continue to limit what banks may do in the payment system. Here I don't want to take that for granted. I want to help you think about the idea of free banking, a system where we replace the central bank with competitive firms and free markets that provide the full range of monetary and banking services. We have to go outside the box, as they say, to think about the consequences of allowing private banks to issue money unrestrictedly and having a monetary system without a government central bank. Fortunately, this isn't social science fiction. We can draw on a rich history of free banking experiences. The successful free banking system of Scotland before 1844 is a leading illustration of the results of minimizing government restrictions on banking and money issue. But we can also look at New England before the U.S. Civil War, Canada before the First World War, more than 50 other places where money was issued by competing private banks subject to minimal restrictions. In historical free banking systems, the basic money was gold or silver coin. The coins could be privately minted, although governments usually monopolized the minting industry. Banks issued currency notes and checkable accounts denominated in standard coin and redeemable for it. 
To attract customers, each bank tried hard to make its notes and checks accepted at 100 cents on the dollar everywhere its customers went, because people wouldn't want to carry a money that fell to a discount or fluctuated in value. Trustworthy bankers made agreements with one another. If you accept my notes at face value, I'll accept yours at face value. As a result, banknotes became interchangeable and retailers had no more trouble dealing with many brands of banknotes than they have today dealing with checks written on many banks. Private banknotes proved more reliable over the years than government banknotes. Unlike a sovereign issuer that can devalue its own currency if it so chooses or quit redeeming it entirely, no private bank can renounce its contractual obligation to redeem in full and get away with it in a court of law. And unlike a bank with a government sheltered monopoly, no private bank in a free banking system can attract customers if it undertakes risky strategies like holding inadequate reserves or making risky investments that would make the public worry about its reliability. Each bank has its reputation to protect in a system where its customers can easily turn elsewhere for money and banking services. So here's the takeaway. Money is not an exception to the rule that a free market is the most efficient system for providing goods and services. Free banking worked well. Central banks, like the Fed, did not come on the scene because of any free market failure to achieve efficiency. In many countries, the government created a central bank in order to have an institution willing and able to lend it money on easy terms. Today, the pressure continues on central banks to print money to pay the government's bills. As the failures of central banking systems continue to mount, the alternative of free banking deserves our reconsideration. Okay, so that, that was... Um that was, hold on, I have him here in my notes. That was Lawrence H. White from Learn Liberty. He's actually an economist at George Mason University. And uh, he did that through, let's say, Learn Liberty and libertarianism.org. Uh, so you can find that on YouTube. Uh, but that's that's kind of a brief history. Did you get a chance to hear that video, Paul? I just kind of remembered that probably only the listeners could hear it. It wasn't coming yeah, from anywhere. Yeah, I, I didn't hear it, no. Okay, gotcha. So you got to be quiet for three minutes. Okay, so that's the... That's the free banking model, and it's just saying that a lot of these federal banks came up. For example, America, you heard the New England area specifically, but most of America was on a kind of limited free banking system during these industrial uh, revolutions in some of these areas that made us great. Pre-Civil War, definitely, and then even the second industrial revolution post-Civil War, we actually returned to that free banking model. We've actually centralized the bank and then turned away from it a couple of times. Um, This is from Forbes. Um, People will remember that Alexander Hamilton established the National Bank, but you might forget and something that i actually didn't know is that they actually that ended up being a disaster and they turned away from it uh the last major experiment in treasury control of currency was the continental dollar in 1776 and that lasted through 1785 it was such a disaster that the founding fathers decided to move to a distributed free banking model for the for the new united states so we it's a distributed free banking model, so it's not technically free banking because they didn't actually um, get get to print the currency on site, but the banks did get to choose how they issued it. Um, now, I would absolutely understand why that freaks people out too, because banks have not always been the most trustworthy institutions on planet Earth either. Um, but in this system, they have an incentive to be competitive. Right now, their only incentive is to try and get as much government money as possible. And they actually have an incentive to be competitive as described in the video. What are your thoughts on free banking, Paul? 
I mean, I I would prefer a decentralized banking system. Uh, and I do understand your point that uh, having it centralized leads to a lot more cronyism and graft and corruption than a distributed competitive system. Uh, so yes, ending the Fed would help cure a lot of cronyism. Uh, I can't deny that, but uh, you know, generally, I, I think that the the system that we have is just set up to be one where who you know is more important than what you're doing. That's and absolutely true. Yep, and people who are afraid of what the next system might be, they they do need to acknowledge the problems in the current system and realize that a more merit-based free market society is not going to reward people in the same ways that we do now. So you're going to look at this and you know you might think well there'll still be some bank that does something crony that does something nepotism that takes bribes you know that still absolutely sets them up in that position that that happened in these free banking systems and what happened is those people went to jail in some countries they were actually executed um and depend you know if your laws are harsh about you know not not taking bribes and not you know, you know, against these banks. And if people have a high demand, as well as a lot of transparency on these banks, then it's really not going to happen very often. The times that it did happen, um, with a bank being a private business as opposed to a public-owned commodity, uh, you were able to sue these banks that took these, these bribes, and they would actually have to recompensate you for bills that were actually valid as opposed to bills that were not that were no law that were not valid anymore. So there's actually a lot of ownership. We actually have a history of them screwing up, which I think is important because then we also get to see what happens when they screw up. I think to say that, that there is a system where no one will ever be corrupt probably doesn't exist, but you can make one so that at least the incentives are to be honest right now. The incentive is to be corrupt. And so if the incentives are to be honest, then when you see somebody do something dishonest, then they go out of business, they get shut down. They have to recompensate the people that messed up. And so I think that that's, that's really what I want to push forward with this free banking thing. Um, I know we're running a little bit over, so I guess I'll let, uh, what, what are your final thoughts, Paul hit us? Uh, my final thoughts, you know, in our day-to-day lives, most of us out here, most of us listening to this, we aren't working for these groups that spend billions of dollars every decade on lobbying. We're working for honest companies, and we're doing our best. When we get rid of the institutions that allow these groups to grow to these monstrosities and have their hand constantly out seeking more power. You know, we get rid of that system. We get rid of those creatures that are being crony. So right there, the libertarian solution gets rid of cronyism. 
and it's really hard to buy power when there's no power to buy. So I think the uh, question of how do we combat cronyism is going to be a very simple what are the cronies going to buy when we have nothing to sell? Excellent point. And I think, so So for my final thoughts, remember that in a free banking system, these dollars are, you have to, you have to earn these dollars. Nothing's printed. So a lot of these businesses that you see, you know, our top bribers list, um, especially our own government, suddenly lose that buying power. And so the money itself is because businesses are have to earn it and you have to prove to a bank that you've earned it because the banks are the ones that are actually printing the currency, the government's not just going to give you money and they're not going to corner out businesses anymore. So therefore, each of those dollars become precious. So even if you feel like you could buy out a politician, but like Paul said, that's very unlikely to be possible. Even if you feel like you could buy out enough politicians, remember the the quantity of those dollars is now very limited, and it's based on the GDP that you produce, the, the value that you actually add to the economy. So it's no longer based on knowing the right people and you're going to get some money or you're going to get some kickbacks. You actually have to earn each and every single one of those dollars. And that that earning means a lot for your average American worker because then all of a sudden we, re- we re-look at labor and we look at, you know, it's funny because we, we think of unions as the big evil guys now. They're all big businesses. They're all cigar chomping, you know, evil, whatever. And that's true for very many unions. But really what unions were supposed to do originally is say, you know, for example, you work um, at a restaurant and you're a line cook, right? Line cooks, and I can tell you from having run several restaurants, make very little money. But if you say, look, here's what my line cook does, here's how much he works, the bank then would would look at your company and say, okay, here's how much you're producing. Here's how, you know, here's the amount of money you get. But then the unions would say, hey, look, here's how much needs to go to our line cooks. They're the ones actually making your food. You know, your service guys would say, well, these are the guys actually providing the service. And so there's actually advocates out of this type of system that, Come about for the little guy. Because when we think about cronyism, I think about the big guys. I think about the big evil guys. And the free banking system, ending the Fed, and limiting this cronyism, really, it doesn't just limit the big guys. It actually lifts up the little guy to say, you actually have an advocate in your corner now to say, no, Mr. Big Business, you're not going to just pay this line cook minimum wage and not pay him overtime, you are going to pay him X percent of your profits. And that's, I mean, that that would be a huge upgrade in the life for a lot of people that find themselves kind of at the bottom of the ladder right now that are doing really hard work. And they're actually the ones providing, if you think about it, they're actually the ones producing that GDP that maintains our high quality of living here in America. So I know that's a really long final thought, but I just had so many thoughts on this subject, like I said, because I get this question so often. I guess that's why it ate at me so much. Um, Paul, it was really good talking with you again, man. I always have some fun. Um, Again, if you have any questions, please join our Discord. Uh, We have a whole section for show ideas. Uh, This is the first week we actually didn't have somebody... I got to choose a show idea because uh, we answered all the previous questions. So if you have a question 
join the Discord, submit a show idea, and the odds are pretty darn good if you have a, if you have a tough question that Paul and I will cover that like the very week after you submit it. Very good chance. Uh, so yeah, uh, until next week, uh, we'll be looking for your questions and hopefully uh, you have one for us because I'm kind of scratching my head about what to talk about next. We're just too good.